Present Tense Podcast. It's Anne Markham Bailey with Present Tense. In this episode of our series, The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places, we're in conversation with Greg Preston, one of the core members of the movement to save the Bankhead National Forest. I met Greg for the first time in the early aughts, at a bonfire in a pasture on land that nestles into the Warrior Mountains. At that first meeting, he did not yet know that he would move far away from the five miles where his ancestors lived in the 1700s. Greg's family ancestral lands in a forest in Alabama. He did not know that he would partner with a powerful woman named Jane, that they would have a daughter, Mahala, that he would support Jane and Mahala as a stay-at-home father. He talks with us about his role in the Bankhead movement, the Oakville protest, sweat lodges, and his vision quest in Indian Tomb Hollow. My apologies for the occasional buzz in this episode. Check out our other episodes in this series, as well as Present Tense, Seasons 1 and 2. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Follow us on Spotify. Check out photos and links on greenbucketpress.com backslash present dash tense dash podcast. And now for the episode. great-grandparent and and so it goes back generations in in the forest I got memories of my uh, great-grandfather and my grandfather my great-uncles and my dad we all went the first time I went to the big tree I was in my mom's womb so <laughs> I've been going for quite a while uh, I lived when we lived at the trailer there at Wren it was five miles from Penitentiary Mountain and I was kin to the Roberts that built the Roberts Inn and Stagecoach stop that later was you know, on Penitentiary Mountain, they later used it for a prisoner holdover, and I guess that's how it got Penitentiary Mountain. So I lived within five miles of where my ancestors lived in the late 1700s. So, you know, my roots went deep there. I never thought I'd move, but, you know, I'm glad I did. I'm glad that I've got to experience a lot of new things because of moving. But the bankhead was... It was just always there. I guess I took it for granted in a lot of ways because it was always there in my backyard. And so, I don't know, I grew up in it, you know. <laughs> Played hooky from school, and that's where we went. <laughs> and, uh, 
When did you become aware that there was a problem? When I would go out there and see my great granddaddy's favorite turkey hunting place leveled to the ground and places that? that it was on the near the Seepsy Wilderness over in the Brazzle Creek area. Well, Brazzle Creek's a big area here. I don't know how to tell you. It's, it was outside of the wilderness, and they would they carried. I don't. I don't. I can't remember some places that that they carried me. Um, I remember one place looking up, and it was a like a cave in a bluff, but we're always used to them being in the bottom, you know, a shelter or something. Well, this was up the bluff wall, and it was. And he said something about some Indian stuff in this cave or something. I have no idea what it was. I couldn't find it. My life depended on it. I've looked. I've, I've looked, you know. But uh, he was my great granddaddy, John Omer. Was they said was one of the best turkey hunters around here. And, um, he, I don't really have any memories directly with him, but my uh, taking going to the forest with him. I think perhaps we did, but I don't. I don't remember. But my granddaddy and um, the the my the my great grandmother on that side of the family. She was the part. She was the Cherokee mixed blood. That, and um, she told stories about them them leaving here in a covered wagon in like 1898 or something, and going out. They were going out west, and I think they only got to like Missouri and turned around and came back. One of her little brothers died of pneumonia, and people wouldn't let them in the wouldn't let them sleep in their barn or or, or cut wood for stuff because they were dark complected. And she, you know, that we had a cassette tape of them saying that they they were treated worse than they treated blacks. They treated blacks pretty bad. Real <laughs> bad. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But they. And uh, I would she, even say that's treat. Mm. Yeah. Native people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. People right. of color. Right. Right. So you went yeah. out to your grand great grandfather's turkey spot, and mm. it was clear gone. cut. Yep. Gone. Yeah, well, gone the land was there, but the trees were gone, and, and other places that, that we had went. Uh, and it just saw it level more and more and more, and then you'd see the monoculture pine plantations coming up, you know, they were not coming up, they planted them, and they they came up. And um, You know, I didn't know what to, I didn't know anything about uh, the, working with the Forest Service or anything. I just thought, that's how it is, you know, what a shame. And, this is the government. What do you, you know? You yeah, can't do you anything do. about it. And, and, uh, and then, somewhere along the line, you know, way I guess I, I was I've tried to think about how I first met Lamar. What what led to Lamar? And it, it must have been some of the Choda people, maybe Butch or or Body, some something through through there. And um, I was working out at Redstone Arsenal then. And, was living in an apartment in, in, in Moulton. And somehow I got Lamar's contact, you know, a phone number or something. And one of the guys that I worked with at the arsenal was a, a pilot, and he wanted to be an airliner pilot. So he was uh, wanted to fly all he could, you know, to get, get the hours up. And, and he said he would, if we would rent a plane, play the wet charge with fuel, that he would fly us, you know, anywhere we wanted to, and he wouldn't charge us for flying. So I thought Lamar would probably get some aerial stuff, you know, and I, that's the first time I remember contacting uh, Lamar or, or making contact with him. And he didn't want to do it. He was he didn't want to do it. 
he was like afraid of flying or something. I don't know, but he was he wasn't interested. Of course, later he did a lot of flying around mm -hmm. and stuff, but he wasn't interested. But that's the first time I remember um, connecting with Lamar. And although he didn't want to fly with uh, Robert on on that some aerial stuff, we we still met, and that that got me into the the beginning of the Bankhead Monitor. We were just starting that up. It was 1990, so it was, or 91, 90 or 91, I don't remember. The Monitor actually was in, was became a 501c3 in, two, in 91. Okay, yeah. But, I mean, the, the movement started, started before. Started before, yeah, yeah, yeah. The year before. Yeah, Well, yeah. Butch had already been doing stuff before that even. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I remember the really early stuff, only it was the, the first lawsuit, you know, golly. That was, um, you know, don't, we, we learned quick that lawsuits based on emotion don't, don't go very far, you know. <laughs> Can you say more about that? Um, let's see. There was, of like um, Butch and Charles and Bobby and Farron Weeks and, of course, Lamar and myself. I think there was five or six of us that signed with the attorney. I think Charles Borden was the only one that was smart enough to not sign an open-ended thing with an attorney, you know? <laughs> I think it was, I, I, it was some reason Charles was scared of it, but the rest of us didn't have much to lose to begin with. He <laughs> was probably the only one that had anything to lose much. But um, the rest of us, we, we, we signed on to this lawsuit. I don't remember Slauson. I, I, I don't remember sure who the attorney was. Bart Slauson? Yes, yeah. yes, yes, yes. So we, we did some things. Um, this, uh, this Apache guy, Julian Nez, was living in the area then, and he made some medallions and um, turtle, what, uh, what mountain, turtle clan or something, the medallions, and we were fighting over the numbers. Oh, I want number seven, or if I can't have seven, I want 12. And, just, <laughs> and <laughs> so we, anyway, we, we sold those to make, we, we raised some funds for it. But, um, I guess he kind of took advantage of us because he knew, you know, we're filing a lawsuit based on emotion. We had no facts, no science to back us up. <laughs> it was, uh, I think it cost about $6,000, but it was a, you know, for myself, at that point, it was like, you know, my, my best friend needs to become science and facts, and we need to, and, and Lamar was, he just would just move into stuff and so quick to um, learn and, and so driven. You know, I've said multiple times that, that all of us, or, you know, it's just my opinion, but all of us couldn't have done it without Lamar. Lamar couldn't do it by himself, but we couldn't have, you know, Lamar was the the brains and the initiative and the motivator and that, that kind of held us to, you know, that was, and Butch was like, you know, just point bulldog Butch in a direction and... <laughs> <laughs> get him fired up, and boy, Butch could get stuff done. You know, he got the Indian mounds out there, and people said that wouldn't that wouldn't happen. He wouldn't be able to do that. But, uh, Butch did a lot, but that first lawsuit was, I, I think, for for me, that was a kind of a turning point, and uh, we really had to educate ourselves on on Forest Service issues, become silviculturists, you know, sort of, and I probably didn't even know that word at the time, you know, so we, it was like learning a, a whole other vocabulary, kind of, to, 
Um, so the first lawsuit, when you said that it was based on a motion, what 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 actually was the suit? I think it was for the um, converting. I think it, it was for converting hardwood forest to to pines without saying that they were converting anything because they they would say you know it didn't matter if it was 150 year old hardwoods on the ridge they would say that's a pine site so when they clear cut all those hardwoods off and planted pines back they hadn't converted anything because you know well they obviously had so that would have been a fact but we didn't you know i'm sure lamar knew a lot more than i did but we didn't you know i, I remember us talking about this was based on mostly emotion and we didn't I don't know. You know, I, I really don't, uh, I don't remember attending any hearing or anything um, personally, which I was working, you know, full, you know, I, uh, full, I had a full-time job, and so it was just volunteer at the Bankhead Monitor at the time. And so you already knew Bobby Butch, were you already part of the Achota? Yeah. And yeah. when did that happen? Or were, I mean, was that before you were born, or oh. was that formed? Um, I became active in the Echota tribe. I mean, I'd had my card for a long, you know, for quite a while. I, there was already okay. stuff going on there. But this was our area. This was the Blue Clans area. There was a sweat lodge, first sweat lodge, I guess, that the Blue Clan did, that I'm aware of, was in... Indy Tomb Hollow after they had um, done that, that uh, uh, clear cut in, in there above Gleesby uh, Creek. And Charles Kennedy came from uh, Dallas and did that sweat lodge. And I, I wasn't in it, but I was looking for it. I, I found them out there. I went in with some of uh, Bobby's other relatives and, and we, we hiked through and found them right there. And, uh, but I had not, uh, I, I wasn't a part of that sweat lodge then. That was the, uh, you know, the Blue Clan would have been involved from the beginning on it because of uh, Butch and, and Charles, they were Blue Clan members. And I guess Lamar later too, I guess, did he? No, I don't think he ever did become an Echota, I don't guess. Or, or I don't know if he had any lineage. Of course, people got in there and didn't have any lineage to yeah. with anyway. <laughs> yeah, I believe that he does. I'm not sure about his clan mm -hmm. affiliation. Oh, I've got a, one of my aunts on my dad's side did a, uh, she's a uh, family tree, you know, genealogy buff. Oh, she's ran one, one leg of ours all the way back to England, and she's been real active. But she, a couple of years ago, she found um, in Ferguson Cemetery in Bankhead, and I don't know where it's at. And I, I thought about it, Colin Butch or something, but I'm pretty sure it was Ferguson Cemetery. And she's got death certificates and marriage certificates and all this stuff. But anyway, he, um, I guess it was a Ferguson, Ferguson Cemetery. Anyway, one of my ancestors is buried there, and she's got his death certificate, got a marriage certificate on him, and his wife's buried there. And on the marriage certificate, his wife's name was Cherokee Woman, probably because they couldn't pronounce it or spell it or, or whatever, you know. Wow. But, so... Did any of the um, Cherokee heritage, did it stay prevalent in your family at all? 
Yeah, yeah. With um, your customs or? Oh, oh, no. My family is hardcore evangelical. So <laughs> it was, they're, they're scared of native stuff. For some people, I think for Billy Shaw said that maybe at, for some of his family, they didn't admit it for a long time. Mm -hmm. Even though they had certain traditions that actually are Cherokee traditions, yeah. they just yeah. never called it that. Right, right. So I, I was really curious about maybe if whether you had that in your family. Yeah, there, there, there could be little things that carried over, little, you know, the white sand on graves that might be something and um sweeping up the yard sweeping everybody's footprints out after a funeral you sweep all those you know there, there's just little things that it's like where'd that come from where where'd that come from and mm -hmm. i think some some of those things were, were native but they weren't they weren't taught to me as being native but you know i think it was just little little things that that uh Maybe those like like that, but no, my uh, my family, you know, fears anything that's that's not uh, Christian. You know, so they didn't. But but we were proud of that. You know, we were proud of, of the heritage enough that you know they always talked about it. And I remember way back in school arguing with one of my cousins over who was going to do the report on the. Native Americans or something in school, you know, we wanted to both do about our family and so it wasn't There was no shame about that But there was also no no interest in that culture So just the Christianized version yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Well has it been interesting for you moving away away from the family in terms of your own heritage Mm. It's been a, a, a huge change um, moving. It was I, I never imagined myself moving. I, you know, I was just like really proud that I lived five miles from where my ancestors lived in the 1700s, and um, so I never imagined leaving. Uh, but life sometimes changes your mind for you, you know. And, <laughs> Got uh, met Jane and you know and uh, we got pregnant. She went off to Iraq. The, you know the Iraq war. She was sent right at the beginning of that in March 2003. I carried her to Fort Campbell. She flew out to Iraq and she stopped taking birth control while she was over there. We kind of knew how that thing worked, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we got pregnant. What a blessing, you know. It's uh, so. Wonderful, but Jane had a career, you know, she was an army officer and and I had a job. I had a pretty good job of working at Boeing, but um, I had a job, she had a career, you know, um, and so when she got back from Iraq, she was working on, while she was over there, she was working on transferring her commission to the U.S. Public Health Service. I remember that. Yeah. 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 So that's what she did. So she still wears a uniform, you know, but, but, um. She's an 06, which is like a colonel in the Army. She's a, uh, uh, they go by Navy rank, so she's a captain, but it's just a Navy rank captain. And so, gosh, I never made, I, I could never touch, you know, myself. I could never make that kind of money. And, and uh, so I became Mr. Mom. <laughs> so that, that changed a lot of, a lot of things. Um, Plus, I, when you first moved, you went, 
Wait, where did y'all go? When we you were went to the Hopi Reservation. Oh, to, so, right, to the Hopi Reservation. Yeah. The native stuff actually carried over a lot there, um, but it was the Hopi. It was not Cherokee stuff, but we were um, got more or less adopted by a family. Uh, Mahala uh, received a Hopi name. They named her. Uh, my, when Mahala was born, midwives delivered her on the Navajo Reservation, and, 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 and they were, you know, and Jane, we were, you know, her eyes, her eyes, her eyes glowed. You know, they really, it was like little lights behind them. In 24 hours, it Still had beautiful, bright blue eyes, but that glow, that was, you know, those midwives never seen anything like it. And one of them was an old lady. <laughs> so she's a good kid, all kids special. But, uh, but they did, um, they wanted to name her. We, we had met some of the Hopi people before we moved there. Um, I don't know, the no we moved in March, and first of March 2003 and but we had met some Hopi people the previous year and we had been for an interview there and, and met some people and um, we just kind of got in with this family the, the the old man was a Kiva leader so they were um, high up in the religious stuff and so the naming ceremony for Omaha was 21 days no Jane could have no salt and maybe no meat no salt for sure, and we had to keep the window blinds closed. And they would come over and and mark the walls with ashes and and do these things to make sure that nothing's coming in the house. And my mom and dad happened to be there <laughs> one night when they came over, they, and, and that kind of freaked them out. They 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 took off uh, the next morning in the middle of the But the naming ceremony was a beautiful thing. They um, the 21st morning that day, or the 22nd day, what it was, I guess the 21st day, people were coming over to our house that I never met, that was my family, you know, my, my new family, and they were all bringing handmade quilts and handmade just all kind of gifts, you know, and I had to cook Nukwavi, or usually the women do the cooking, but I, that, that was my new job. Nukwavi is a hominy and, and a lamb or sheep, mutton, mutton. Uh, stew, and that's that would be like Mahala's first food. So oh, the the grandma, the old woman, dipped her finger in the nukwavi and gave the juice to Mahala. So that was her her first thing. But they they uh, brought water um, from a special spring, and they washed Jane's hair, and they put uh, cornmeal all over her face, white cornmeal, and they took Mahala and they washed her whole body in that water and and did all kind of stuff and they were amazed at how she never cried or nothing she was just like enjoying the whole deal you know but so that was special it was really good and they um we were allowed to go into the kiva sometimes and most people that look like us don't get to do that and there were i didn't get to go in a lot of uh, antelope ceremonies snake dance i couldn't go to any of that but i did get to go into the kivas for some of the ceremonies and, so they, they treated us real well. They treated us like, just like human beings. But that, that was good. We stayed there five years at Hopi, and then it's, it's, it's not a place to send your kid to school. You know, it's unfortunate, but I were really not, we did not want her to have to go to school there. It would have been, um, I don't mean to, it won't sound bad, but it, you know, would have, it would have failed her had, had we sent her to school there. And, 
we had a choice, so so we didn't. You know, when she was five, we moved to Oklahoma with the Pawnee um, people, and that was the end of the religious ceremony as far as the Native American stuff. When we moved to Oklahoma, we were there for two years. So you're on a Pawnee reservation, which that works. For what it is right. in Oklahoma, you know, it's, <clears throat> they probably they have a little bit of land, but not. Not a lot, but yep, it was the Pawnee. She worked at the Pawnee Hospital. You know, really nice people, but most of them were Christianized, at, at, you know, at that point. But I, I think there was probably something going on with uh, traditional still. I know with the Cherokee in Oklahoma, it, it is, so I, I assumed it was some stuff there too, but I just wasn't, I wasn't around it. We were there only, only two years. And it was. <clears throat> You know, on the Hopi Reservation, we were on the reservation. You know, the grocery store was 75 miles away. So buying groceries, was, that was a half a day ordeal. And um, really isolated, really isolated. And in Oklahoma, it's yeah, just not like Bobby living here. You, uh, he came stay the whole month. <laughs> yeah, you that know? was amazing. He would talk to about being, about where you lived yeah. and what it was like just to be able to go out in all these shards. That's oh, one wow. thing he talked about. Like he just, the, yeah. this was just everywhere. Yeah, yeah. All right, we explored all over that place. I acted just like I part of the place. I explored more than I hope you do. They, <laughs> I'm fine. They, well, you know, they know some things, but that, uh, but still, alcohol and drugs is just wrecked so much. So much reservations are kind of hopeless, you know. It's it's hard, and you know, when somebody said, "You know what? Fix it, and I'll give you the resources, whatever you need. Just go make that better." I don't know what I would do. Uh, economic opportunity, you know. You first, I, I work with um, the Grand Canyon Trust now, some a little bit, and and they. Um, have gotten involved with the Navajo and have started like a little business incubator and they're helping some of the native people start their own businesses. There, there's one young couple that's, that um, just has people, tourists come out and they've got their, um, the Navajo, their, where they do their ceremonies in the little multi-sided house, six or eight sided house. <laughs> uh, anyway, anyway, the Grand Canyon Trust is is providing them with some economic opportunities and just ideals, you know, you, and, and, and things. And that is, some of the people are taking advantage of that, and that's helping uh, do some stuff there. And so I'm, I'm glad that they're working. They're, they're pretty heavily involved with them now, the Grand Canyon Trust is. That's really that's, interesting. That's a good group. I, I, that's my favorite group. I'm involved with Suya a little bit, so Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance a little, a little bit too. But been up on Bears Ears multiple times. Some surveys up there. But the Grand Canyon Trust is my favorite thing now. That's it's been tough meeting people for us. My accent, you know, everybody as soon as they hear me talk a little bit, they're like, yeah, they'll be talking about the build that damn wall and. Them fucking Mexicans, goddamn all the G G G, and it's like, 
It's like they just assume, oh, you're from Alabama, and you okay? You're just like, right. <laughs> I mean, even, pig. yeah, just like <laughs> I am. <laughs> even in the doctor's office, so it's unfortunate that things have got to where it, that that can like make or break a you know a friendship, or, or you know it's become so so divided. I was a Republican when I got out of the army, joined the Young Republicans in Decatur, Alabama, and manned a phone bank and stuff, and. Um, my best friend Jim Roberts here was a Democrat, but we were best friends, you know, and we were be the best of friends. None of that. Yeah, you could do that back then. Yeah, now it's like, wow, you know, it's, <laughs> every time I think I'm, it, I'm, you know, going to meet some somebody or start, you know, develop a relationship with somebody, it's, you know, when I hear that start to come out, it's like, mm -hmm. it's, it's, unfortunately, won't work out, you know. It was well, it's now so extreme. Like to me, I think it means if if you're for Trump, I have to interpret that as meaning you think it's okay to rape women, to hate people of color. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and the list just goes yeah. on. Yeah. So it becomes something that doesn't feel like it's I, there's any place for me to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, but, it's it's interesting that. You started this path here in Alabama, and it's just like opened up as you mm -hmm. moved out into the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't do a lot, um, but I guess I'm old enough. I don't have to worry about doing a lot. I do enough. My my goal has been to spend, be there for my daughter. Me too. That's my, that you, my you know, that was I wanted, and, and I don't, I don't regret being a stay-at-home dad. And, and that's tough when you're raised culturally, you know, that you, you're the man, you're the breadwinner, you know, you do this, and and it, it, it's tough, you know, because kind of, I don't know, I feel like men think women didn't really do anything, you know, so anything you do in the house is women's work. So it's, I still deal with that, you know, I can get in up. Your own head. Yes, I can get up, I can do all the laundry, I do all the cooking, all the shopping. Um, Jane does, she's, she, you know, she was trying to remember the last time she cleaned a bathroom. You know, she, she don't know. But that, you know, I said, you, you know, if we're gonna do this, you work, and I, and I got the rest of it. And of course, she helps out. You know, she does things. But could you clone yourself? But, <laughs> but <laughs> teach the rest of the uh, world. It's tough. I beat myself up. You know, I, I can get up and and do. I, you know, I, I fix Jane a salad for lunch. I fix Mahala egg, or egg white on toast with two pieces of turkey bacon for breakfast. I fix her a sandwich for lunch. And I, so I got all this stuff going. And and I can do the laundry. And I can sweep and vacuum. And I can clean the bathrooms. And I can go to the grocery store and get stuff. And at the end of the day, I you know, I haven't done shit. I haven't done nothing all day. And I think it's a, because men look at that as women's working, and it don't amount to nothing. And that's stuck in my head still. You know. To a what degree, I'm a lot. You know, it's been 15 years, so I've 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 got better at it. But still, people will look at me, and you know, and I know I'm judged by other men, especially you know, uh, or I, I feel it. You know, I, I know one guy told me that that hope you a white guy. He said, "Well, you know, well, yeah, I worked full time and raised my daughter too." You know, and, and I told him straight up, I said, "Yeah, and look at the look." Look at your daughter. <laughs> She's a mess. Good grief. Drug addict and all kind of stuff. But so anyway, that's interesting doing the you know, when you break out of the culture or whatever that you're raised in. But 
and do something different, but it would be nuts to try to make Jane stay home and live on, you know, I, have a, I could never make half of what she does, so it, it would not make sense to do that. But it's still, it's tough. It's tough. I, I told my mom this trip, oh, this is not what we're talking about. <laughs> we're supposed to be talking about my kids, so anyway. <laughs> we're circling. We're yeah, talking about your story. <laughs> yeah, it's a yep. fascinating story, mm -hmm. though. It really is. And so, um, do you do you have the? I see you have the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to. Did you want to see? I was just going to get see if you want to say what, take out a question. Oh yeah, okay. And uh, um, it's not on here, but um, you you participated in the protest at Oakville. Yep. Would you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, I, re I, re I remember that pretty well. I remember Lamar was like, why is the phone bill $300? Because <laughs> we had a $300 phone bill that month. And he, I bet he still got it. If I loaned Lamar, he could probably pull it, <laughs> pull it out and show it to you. But he wanted to know, we were working, I believe, I'm not positive. I think we were working from our homes then. I think that the, we were not at the store at Wren, and we were working out of our homes at that time. And that's find the phone, and I would give Lamar, or I would get my phone bill, and I would highlight all the business mm. calls, you know, so that month was like, what? But that was, um, I would give myself a little credit on that for putting, uh, I, I contacted all the people on that. I, you know, I, I kind of feel like I put that together. You know, somebody start, um, started it, which I was working full time. I was working for Bank and Monitor. Oh, we wild Alabama. That 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 was a big um, thing. We had, I called um, all the Chota people in the state that I could get their phone numbers, and that's when we had a three hundred dollar phone bill. Like, and and people came up from all over the place. A Chota tribe participated well in that, and we had a. Uh, there was an author, James. Somebody. Redfield. Yeah. He was he was there, you know, and I think probably was a huge supporter, right? Yeah, yeah that somebody I don't know. Fund in the beginning. I'm not sure who that, if that was Lamar's connection. That was not mine. I heard, I heard, it heard it of him, but yeah, okay. In and, fact, I think James Redfield reached out to Lamar. Okay, yeah. He had uh, he has some background with the Bankhead. Um, he included the Bankhead was part of a book that he written. Mm -hmm. Not the Celestine Prophecy. Yeah, the Bankhead's in that book. It's based on the Bankhead. It's not named, is it? But it's right. Yeah. yeah. Have y'all read it? Mm -hmm. I have not. I, have not I think we should read it. it. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I, I really should. So. Uh, that was kind of a turning point for us. It was. Um, we did put. Got a lot of people there, and maybe I'm not sure who got the tents from the funeral home from Elliot's funeral home. We got some canopy tent things, Butch or somebody, I don't know who did that. I, I called people and, and others did other things to get it, mm -hmm. to get it together. But I think that was a turning point. Um, I think what started that maybe was, um, I lost, I, I got really angry and I, I, and I started at James Ramey and and I went all the way up to D.C. <laughs> and raising hell, I was mad.
And I was, and I gave them all hell, you know, <laughs> all the way up to, you know, they wouldn't let me talk to whoever the chief of the Forest Service was, <laughs> but um, or he wasn't there or whatever. But that is what started the, then they wanted to come here and see what was going on. And, and that's what brought the, the guy in the Forest Service that was the head of the cultural stuff, he came here. And I guess I was still working out at the Arsenal then because I didn't get to go out with them. Uh, Lamar took them out and they, they saw stuff that they didn't like, you know. They were, um, where Aunt Jeannie Brooks was buried, there was a fresh clear cut somewhere around there and one of the guys said, that's, that's not Forest Service like it is. It just, Lamar was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so it got a, I might be getting a little, I hope I'm not getting confused with two different things. But I think that that was what kind of got people interested in us. Then they contacted the regional people, which was Kent Snyder and Dave, Dave somebody. And they came to represent the Forest Service at Oakville, and it rained that day. It was a, it was a crazy day, but they were coming up from Atlanta, Kent Snyder and Dave. They were coming from Atlanta. It was pouring rain, and, and they were driving, driving like, boy, it's going to be a mess. It's going to be a mess. And after a while, they saw a little blue spot in the little, you know, opening in the clouds. Mm -hmm. And Kent Snyder uh, told Dave, he said, I know I've never been to Oakville, but I believe that's going to be wherever that is, that's going to be it. And <laughs> it was. It was. It was. Um, I, um, I called Floyd Hand, uh, Grandpa Floyd Hand, and in, in, uh, he's Lakota and at Pine Ridge, and uh, he was going to pray. He was a he was a really interesting person that that helped that that helped us. He really connected with us. Um, Gene Gold, but Gene gave me Floyd Hand's phone number because he was afraid he was afraid to call him. <laughs> you know, he was afraid of him. He was that, that Floyd Hand's a medicine man, a Hayoka, mm -hmm. which is a backwards and and um and I, I called him. I was dumb enough that I didn't care. <laughs> I, I called him and then and his wife, Natalie's Cherokee. So she answered the phone when I called up there and I told her what was going on and, and she said, He'll call you back in four hours. And so four hours later he he called. He he called me and he started telling me he described a person that would be at the Oakville protest and said, don't trust them, they're against you. And uh, he said, don't worry about the rain. <laughs> you know, I told him pour, pour and rain. He said, well, we, we'll split the clouds. And and they did, apparently. I mean, I don't, you know, it didn't rain. It was raining everywhere, all the way to Atlanta, but it didn't, it didn't rain on us while we were there. And... He told us to take a, make a prayer flag and um, and tie it to a big stick with the prayer flags. Use a cloth with uh, the six colors of the Lakota Nation. And so we went up on the ceremonial mound there at Oakville and put that big stick up with the with the prayer prayer flags on it. Charles Kennedy was up up there drumming. And um, at some point, and I don't, I, I was down with the. Lamar and everybody down, you know, with the main thing. But they, they said a huge red-tailed hawk came, and they saw it, and it, it came over the mound, and it started, it circled, and they said it dove right down towards that, the prayer flags and took back off. And I said, well, there's Floyd. He said he was going to check on us. <laughs> that 
uh, it was people, you know, I had talked to um, people in Cherokee, North Carolina, you know, and so people were praying for us all over the country, and and, um, and I didn't speak, you know, of all the stuff, trying to get help, get everything put together and everything organized, and then we got all that. I, I didn't speak. I just stood back. I, didn't, I don't like to public speak. So, but it was good. I, I think that was a turning point for us, kind of. Who else spoke that day? Do you remember? The, the boat captain. Oh, goodness, everybody. Charles Kennedy spoke. Charles, most of the Butch. Um, Billy Shaw. The the boat captain from Double Springs. Oh, the... Um, he was in... He, yeah, it's a tour boat thing. I don't know if it's a steamboat thing. or mm -hmm. Anyway, it's a, he wears a captain, boat captain's uniform. And he... Mm -hmm. it, um, he was with us because tour, his his business was tourism oriented. Some, of course, locals took advantage, but tourists was he, he wanted tourists, and, uh, so he was he sided with us. And Double Springs was hugely against us, you know. They, they were not happy. But in, Neil Shipman, that was that the boat captain's name, Neil Shipman. He was in one of the magazines. Uh -huh. But it was people. When you say Double Springs, do you mean the the little the district bank and district of the Forest Service or the community in general? The community in, in general. Is that because their community was based on logging? Yeah, yeah. And they, they, their perception. Yeah, they were hugely against mm -hmm. you know the, the first Sipsy wilderness, and I, Charles Borden was in on that. I know, and, and I don't know who else. I forgot the. Grandma with the bank kid's name, but you know, but Charles was in on, on the first or the second Sipsy Wilderness, either the first one and the expansion or just the expansion. I don't remember for for sure. Both, yes. both, yeah. definitely the the expansion. He was really a leader in that. Yeah, but Double Springs, you know, they were they were opposed it big time, and then after it went through and every, everything, it wasn't too long till they got a sign up that says, welcome, the, uh, so what was it, Double Springs, a gateway to the Sipsy oh, Wilderness right. or something. <laughs> yeah, we all fight change, you know, mm -hmm. and it's like, we all get in our ruts and this is the way it is and that's the way it's gonna stay. But it, it's, that's never been true and it's never gonna be true. What's it's, next on our list? Well, we've been all over the list. Yeah. <laughs> Yay, this is my favorite. Um, Something I would like to hear hear more about is, uh, from your point of view, how is how is the forest a sacred place, or do you feel that it is a sacred place? I do, but when I looked at that, that you know, if I had never moved, that would be easier to answer because it's um, all wild places are sacred. You know, the bank kid is absolutely sacred but so is the Grand Canyon you know just cause six million people go to the South Rim a year don't mean you can't go to the North Rim and get a backcountry permit and go and for a whole week you see two people you know we we, we did that and it's that's so incredible to be able to you know get up before sunrise and roll out your sleeping bag out of the tent and I get coffee on and I got my chair sitting there on the edge of the rim and I'm waiting for the sun to start coming up you know <laughs> yeah, so um, we, we, we've been blessed to be able to, fortunate to be able to travel a little bit here and, and me being a stay-at-home dad, I get to take Mayla off and, you know, her whole life, I, when she was three months old, Bobby came to, what was it, Hopi, and, and I took Mayla on her first hike when she was three months old and people, 
kind of freaked out on me about, you know, this, you know, three months old, that's a pretty little kid, and we're hiking to the White House ruins in Kenyon to Shea. That's the only place you can hike to without a Navajo guide. And it was, I don't remember, several miles back back in there. But I had my Haley in a, like a sheet thing, you know, wrapped around me, and I had her in there. I had pumped breast milk on a, on in a little pack on ice. I had an electric bottle warmer, <laughs> a battery-powered bottle warmer. And before we went, she slept. All she did was sleep, you know, the whole time. And, and people give me a little bit of hard time. So Lamar and Kathleen came out when she was six months old. And... Tahopi and stayed a little bit with us, and and we went back to Kenya to show you and did it again. And some woman really gave me a mate was six months old, no, five months old, and they thought I was really bad dad. You know, they gave me a hard time about abusing little infants. <laughs> but hey, she loved it. So, so it, it it we've been able to go, and I'm at Hopi exposure a lot to nature. We just wandered all the time. Which you know, we left there. She was five, so she don't have a lot of memories, but she has has some. But we've always done stuff. Uh, last year we did. Hmm, we did about two thousand miles, four national parks. We 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 left and went up to Moab um, and did stayed a few days in arches and then down to Canyonlands and. Did that and hiked all over the dang place. It was really a lot of fun. Went to cross to Capitol Reef. What else is it? Can we see arches, canyonlands? And then we went on over into uh, Utah to Great Basin National Park. That's like one of my favorite places. I love that place. So um, it's special to be able to do those things with her. And but the sacredness. The more you know, it's like. It's everywhere. So to me, and I hope it's not sound bad, but the bankhead's not quite as unique, uniquely sacred. But it is. They're kind of equally sacred. They're mm -hmm. you know wild places are sacred, and and what what would make bankhead unique to me was my family, my my roots there going mm -hmm. back. Um, so long. But I um as far as being I unique, felt like um at for example at Kenlock. It almost feels to me like at certain times, uh, being there, it just feels like you can feel all the ritual that's gone on there, mm. you know. And that seems yeah. to be at that particular space, um, you can. F it sometimes it just feels like it's alive in the air around mm. the, around there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, or that weird globe we saw that mm. time. Oh, that reminds me of a. At Kenlock, one time, Steve Morgan, he wasn't involved in the movement or anything, Bankhead Monitor or stuff, but just somebody that I, I knew, we we went there and camped out at Kenlock, just just the two just the two of us, and we got to hearing a uh, like a hum, and and if I was by myself, I wouldn't tell this, but I had because nobody would, would believe it, but there was a it it looked like uh, it was maybe a door, it was a, a rectangular shape. And and it was like scintillation, you know how the, you know the little, yeah, it was like that. And it, it was night. We had a fire going, but you could see from the fire lighting it. It looked, and neither one of us would go through that. You know, we were like, I'm not going to go. We we were like scared it, of it, but it was kind of, uh, so it just appeared. Yeah, and it and it was humming like, mm, this, mm, this is like this energy sound, and you know I don't know what it was. 
but it scared us, you know. We, I wouldn't have went through it for nothing. From you know, somebody said pass through that. I don't know, but you know there is those things. We went uh, with Charles Kennedy out west. We went one of the national monuments. We went up to a, there, there was a kiva inside a cave. It was a ceremonial cave, and they had uh, reconstructed the top back on this kiva, and and it was down in the ground, like the and 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 you could. You could actually there was a ladder, <clears throat> and you could go to, go down in it. So Tara was there too, Tara, and uh, so we went down in the. There was nobody else up up there, you know. And we went down into that kiva, and Charles started singing the ancestral calling songs, and little pinpoints of light just filled that kiva up, just floating in there. It's like golly, and we were singing in there. <laughs> we came climbing back up that ladder, and it was all these kids standing up early. <laughs> They were thinking, they didn't know what was happening, you know, all the singing and stuff, coming chanting from down in there. They kind of embarrassed me, but anyway, those kids kind of freaked out. But that was that special, you know, wow, that those those spirits still there, that energy is still there or something. It's still there. Yeah. Tara talked a lot about that, too. Mm -hmm. Just, that, just yeah. that kind of energy and that presence. Yeah, you know. yeah. But I, I felt that stuff in a lot of different places. No cities, but <laughs> but in wild places, right. it's uh, it's there. So. Speaking of Charles Kennedy, and um, do you have any thoughts or anything you would want to say about um, the people who were part of the movement at that time who are no longer with us? I mean, like Jim Manasco, uh, and Bobby Gillespie, yeah. Charles, Rusty uh, Manasco. Yeah. Um, do you have any memories of them? Anything you'd like to say? Uh, Jim was like, he was the storyteller, I guess, the, the talker. The, and the Cherokee in North Carolina, they have a, that's one of the positions in their, is the, the talker, the storyteller, kind of. So Jim was kind of, kind of that. Um, Rusty, you know, he, I don't know what happened with Rusty. He just gave up, I think. You know, he got tired and quit. But I uh, don't know the reasons. But he was silversmith and gunsmith. He did a lot of things, and, and he, he helped us. He was a good work, you know, helped us a lot. And uh, uh, the ceremonies, the sweat lodge stuff, Rusty, he had a lot of health problems, you know, but he would be the fireman and stuff and always uh, dependable, you know, any, anything that you needed done. Charles was he was like their spiritual leader or something I guess you know he was he brought the sweat lodge back to us and, and uh, that 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 was a very important thing at that time it was the, the having the sweat lodge back and uh, Charles was on a personal level he was like an uncle you know a big brother to me I I learned more about living from Charles Kennedy than anybody you know his. Uh, his 20 years in, in AA, I, I guess, you know, he learned, uh, uh, there's a lot of spiritual stuff, I guess, in, mm -hmm. in, in AA, and that, that was where he learned a lot of his, a lot of his stuff, not, not the sweat lodge, but a lot of his um, philosophies and things would, would be around the AA stuff. He was, uh, I think that was really important. I know that was very important to him, but it, 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 it made him uh, kind of who he was. It was the the AA did. Mm -hmm. you know? But he he was a a kid and 
he never grew up, you know, he was a child, always childlike. And one time somebody somebody asked me if he was gay, and I said, oh, yeah, he's the happiest person I ever saw. <laughs> but he, he was, he, he'd get off filming, he didn't care, you know, and he was, when we went uh, out west, Tara and my ex-wife Tracy and, and me and Charles, and we did all that stuff, he, he took us to, so we were in New Mexico, in this National Forest, and there was a sign, sign the road, it said, hey, Ms. Hot Springs, or no, just Hamas Springs. That's what it was, and, and so we stopped, and Charles knew that he'd been there, you know, so, but we're, we're following him. You go across this little uh, wooden bridge, and some Forest Service personnel were working, doing a little maintenance on, on it, and we hike, hike up and hike up, and then you get up there, and there's three springs. It's a, it comes out of the ground real, real super hot, and then down, spills down into a second one, and then down into a third one, and, so we go walking up there, and, and everybody's naked, and Charles just strips off and looks back at us, giggles like a little kid, and takes off, and we're all like, <laughs> well, especially Tara and them. I kind of got over a lot of that while I was in the Army. They, they made certain of that. The Lawrence County boy that, you know, golly. <laughs> they had a lot of fun at my expense. But it, <laughs> It was all right. Yeah. They took you know, We went to a swim bar, a swim indoor swimming pool, you know, and had a big sauna. And I'd, I'd never had a sauna or anything. Just go do a sauna, yeah, cool. And sitting there naked, and all of a sudden, here comes a whole bunch of women, you know, <laughs> and they were all looking at me to watch my reaction, you know. <laughs> um, but let's see, Bobby. Bobby was like Mr. Cool and Calm. He was always like a. The solid person, he he didn't get rattled. If you needed to get calmed down, you could be around Bobby. And he was very slow to anger, for what I knew of him. You know, it seemed like he would be rational, and he could get a little excited maybe, but he was usually always calm and um, the steady hand kind of. You know, the rest of us might get all emotional and. Bobby would be there to settle us back down or something, you know. I, I don't know. Bobby was probably at the top of the age bracket to be as close as we were, because if he got much difference in us, he would have been like it would be like parent-child mm -hmm. almost age difference. But I think it was th thirteen years difference in in our ages. But he was just a, you know Charles Kennedy was uh, eight years older than me. But they were so, were so close, uh, really. Really close, and I guess I've been closer to anybody than those two people there, Charles and Bobby. We did um, a lot of things when Bobby lived at Trinity, kind of uh, close to where my mom lives. We would do activities over there once a week. We we tanned deer hides and made um, our, our for um, the sacred pipe. They'd make our, our bags for it, make our own leather and. Do feathers and it would be crafts. We would just get together at Bobby's once a week and do crafts, mm -hmm. native crafts, and that was good. Those things, you know, having a place to go do that, and and uh, Bobby with all you know tons of books. If, if if he couldn't remember it in his head, he had a book with it in it somewhere, you know. And, uh, so I miss those guys, but uh, they they were critical to the to the movement. You know, they were they were definitely. Uh, a big part of yeah. it. It would have, it would have, well, like I said earlier, it, it would have went on without any of us, you know, except Lamar. I don't know, you know, if, if it could have something happened to Lamar, I don't know. 
if we would have kept it going or not. Maybe after a while, because it had grown, but in the beginning, there's no way. It, 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 Lamar was the dude, you know, he, yeah. was, he was the man. It's a force. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was the fire that was needed at yes. that time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He was. And he knew how to funnel it. He knew how to, where to direct it. You know, I was kind of lost on where do you go, where do you turn, and Lamar could, he could get zeroed in on that. Mm -hmm. and he was, everybody's different, you know, and Lamar's unique. I remember he told me he got a job one time. He saw a, a he needed a job, so this had been way before premium or anything, I guess, but he, it was a survey job. He saw somebody needed a, a wanted a survey, and Lamar didn't know anything about surveys, so he went and bought a book and read about it, and then he went and filled out an application and may have told some falsehoods. I don't know. You could ask him, but I think he actually got a job as a surveyor and or a surveyor's helper or something maybe. And but it was he didn't know anything about it. He just went and read a book and then filled and applied. But he he could fill in the gaps on that. But he was he was really special. He could do so much, you know. Could accomplish so much in a day. Uh, uh, Farron Weeks is kind of that that way too, you know. Farron, not now. Just, things have changed there, but Farron could do so many things in a day. I'd get tired thinking about it, you know. <laughs> and it's, how do you do all this stuff? And, and you know, it's because they're who they are. They that's because that was Farron and that's Lamar. Mm -hmm. That's just. And they were driven. Yeah, I feel lazy sometimes, you know, like, but look, you can't keep up with them. We hope the young people are going to save us. <laughs> Janice the, says, take but, people to the forest. Yeah. That's what she does. Yeah, yeah, Thank that's you, right, Janice. that's right. That's a very important, get people out there in it. That is very important. Um, you can't appreciate something that you never saw or never experienced or, or something. You. Yeah, yeah. But, but I... I I hope that the young kids are gonna. I hope they're gonna pull us out of this thing. You know, they they don't seem to be um, as materialistic. You got a lot of those little house people. You know, the young people they don't seem to be as into car ownership as much. And um, I have two nephews that are millennials, and golly, they're different. You know, they're just that's a different bunch right there. But but I'm sure they probably say about it, every generation, you know, they say, what's happened to those kids, you know? But that, these, the young ones are different. There's a, there's, as we go out and, and travel around the national parks and stuff, it's uh, lots of young adults, lots and lots, I see lots of young adults. And they're out there in it, and they're sharing it with their children. Mm -hmm. So old people like us, I don't I've given up on it, you know. I, I, I don't understand it anymore. I'm, I got a, a cousin that's a mathematician, very intelligent, highly educated, you know. And, and he said, do you believe they think that we can alter the climate? <laughs> what do you say, you know? I'm a, I don't know. I, I had a... I mean, he's a mathematician. If he drew up something here and got all this stuff on, on the board and said, and here this is, you know, and I, and I looked at it and I, I can't add. And I said, shit, I don't believe that, man. <laughs> you know, that would burn him up. What do you mean you don't believe that? I'm a school. I learned all this stuff. Yes, that's it. And I'm like, no, man, I don't believe it. I, I don't believe it. I think that's just a bunch of crap you made up. And, but that's what he's doing, you know. Yeah, 97% of the, what, 97% of climate scientists or peer-reviewed climate scientists say, yes, we're, we're 
the pro the primary driver of mm -hmm. of this climate change. How do you turn your back on it? You know that just ah, that that is frustrating me. I try not to. I've kind of given up on the people our age. You're not going to change them. I don't think. Um, I don't. How, I did, have you have you not heard people smart people say that you know they don't believe that we're screwing with the climate? Oh yeah, you know? well, I mean yeah. Smart, I don't know, educated, <laughs> and it's like I how do you not believe science? To materialism is so strong. Yeah. That the implications of believing it. Yeah. Means that they they are responsible. Yeah. Right. Right. And they right. they just can't. They bought the American dream. Yeah. They did it. They followed the line. They have their 401k. They bought the car. I'm yeah. like, they did it, yeah. you know, and sacrificed to do it. Mm -hmm. And now you're saying that the thing we did, we've destroyed our own planet? I yeah. Mean, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. I deal with that. Like, how can I not destroy this place? Right. Because there's, I mean, you can unhook from the system. But the kids, you know, I look at these young kids, and I say, well, I keep saying that, but I, I believe that they'll, they're going to pay. Boy, they're going to have to pay. You know, I, my, my daughter, she's going to pay. She has children. They're going to pay. Mm -hmm. um, but it's like there is a whole bunch of people that you cannot penetrate their mind. You, you, you know, you just... Part of it is religion. Some, you know, some say no, we can't do no, no, we can't do that. God will take care of everything. God will take no care what, of no matter this what. Is the plan. If this mm -hmm. is what's happening, it's supposed to happen, mm -hmm. and it's you know, and we can't change it if we want to. And He, he did give us dominion over all. Right. Mm -hmm. Which I think is one of the most destructive things that was yeah. ever said. Yeah. That humans have dominion instead of basically we're here as servants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because my mom can show you all kind of places in the Bible where it says you're supposed to take care of the earth, you know. She, but but this, you know, you can take that book and say any dadgum thing you want to. It's all in there, mm -hmm. everything. That's right. What do you want to say? It's it's. I, I took a. Um, You've heard of great courses. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do that. Jane, I, I turned her on to it. Now she does it all the time. She's that's the learningest woman I've ever seen in my life. That's amazing. She's like, God, if I could just retire, I'd get my PhD. I'd finish me. You know, I'd be a fool. I'd just go to school for the rest of my life. <laughs> she, is a, she is a really smart lady. Yes, she is. Make science and facts your best friends. Gather as often as possible in wild places for fellowship and renewal. Love and support each other and vote. <laughs> That's my... <laughs> That's for the, they said something about what would you tell the young people, mm -hmm. you know. And that's, being able to get together in fellowships really important. That was, that was really, an, you know, a big part of the, that kept us together. It wasn't just, it was all the other things. It wasn't just strategizing for the bankhead, the bankhead, the bankhead. It was, it, 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 we let that in, it enveloped all parts of our lives. It became our spirit, not, not just this environmental movement, but our spiritual movement. And, uh, it was our way of life. It, it just—it really became that. And there were threats early on. They never threatened me directly, but you know they were—they uh, were gonna kill us all and all that stuff. They attacked Lamar's driveway. They graffitied, kill Lamar, kill Charles. Um, 
Um, but that they, there was a meeting at the one of the churches in the forest I didn't go to, and I'm kind of glad because they was gonna get the rope and hang Charles, I guess, and maybe Charles and Lamar. They were gonna hang them at this church. <laughs> so it was the beginning was, you know, not for the faint-hearted, really, when, when we first started. Mm -hmm. But the big thing I think that helped um, all of the, us and the loggers and stuff was when they started that liaison committee. So that actually put us at a table with the opposition. And I think it was good for all of us. Um, I, th I think that we learned maybe from them. I think I, I, I did, certainly. But I think they also learned from us. And I think they began to see that some of what we did was right. And uh, we were probably, you know, we learned. I think in the beginning we didn't like control burns too much. And, and I still wonder sometimes, you know, because they, they, they took us out, I remember, and showed us one side of the road where it had been control burns and the other side of the road had not been. So mm -hmm. that's, that's a pretty good example because it was everything was the same. And then it had been multiple, I don't remember how many years it had been, but on the side of the road where they had not um, done any burns was lots of hollies, little holly trees growing in there. And where they were doing the control burns, all the hollies were gone. So, but... Control burns are good and necessary, I think, you know, overall, because we, we stopped the wildfires, so we got to do something to get that, that mm -hmm. uh, the, all the buildup, the debris and brush and stuff. We got to get that out of there. And it's, and it's natural. Fire is natural, so we need to, to mimic nature where, you know, where we can. We don't need hot fires here. We need, you know, we need cooler fires. South Alabama and Longleafs, they, <clears throat> well, we have Longleafs up here, don't we? But they need some hotter fires, you know, to to uh, propagate and keep going. The sweat lodges were, you know, when, when we were, we were. I, I was trying to remember, uh, my cousin Lynn Porter and I built a sweat lodge somewhere, I can't even remember where it was now. I, I remember what was around, I remember some things, but I don't know where the heck it was. But we, the sweat lodge was powerful for us. It, um, I did a vision quest in, in the bankhead and that was, um, I have a good memory of that, you know. Uh, it was who was your who, Charles was your, came in and um, gosh, it was a lot of people, a lot, a lot of people down there. We we were we didn't know how the river rocks would do. We thought they might blow up and yeah. you know and stuff. So we hauled duffel bags on poles from the parking area all the way to well, we we got up to the bluff above the. It's not Kenlock, this was uh, Parker Falls. Parker Falls. So mm -hmm. we, we carried over well over a hundred stone people down to all the way from the parking area all the way down to Parker Falls. And that was what a you know, we worked our asses off. It was a lot went into it and everybody was really supportive, you know. I was humble but everybody coming because it was my vision quest, they didn't they were all come, you know, to, to support me. And it was, we ended up using the rocks right out of the Hubbard Creek there because <laughs> we ran out of the other ones. But we did a lot of, I did four sweat lodges before I went up there. I sat in each direction, like the north, the east, south. We did a whole sweat lodge in each direction. Was fasting for, I don't remember, three or four days that time. And, and then all that sweating, the sweat lodges, sweat lodges. Boy, you talk about thinning the veil, holy cow. And then they took me up on the hill, and I made six hundred and 
six, I guess, six prayer ties. And that's a lot. Each prayer tie you're putting yourself into, you're praying as you make those prayer ties. And then I had four fruit tree saplings that I put in one in each direction and then strung those prayer ties around it. And I just had to sit in that circle, you know, and I had my, my chinupa sacred pipe. And, but, and I, I was still smoking cigarettes then too, but I couldn't, I couldn't have any fire. I couldn't have any, not a flashlight or cigarette light or nothing. Just sat there for, I don't know, 36 hours or something around the clock. But it was a long time to stay in that circle, you know, and not and not leave there. But it was, boy, you know, I don't know. You tell people this stuff, and it's like, unless you've experienced something like it, it's hard to believe, you know. Um, but it was a lot of they they did a sweat lodge while I was up on the hill, and um, my name was they they named me Standing Panther, stands with Panther, that they gave for my Indian name, and that was that. Black Panther, you know, Lamar's probably talked about that Panther. And, uh, a cousin of mine called me and, and told me about it, the Panther, and they had video of it. And so I called Lamar, and we went over to Mark's house, and we were standing out on the back, and he said, well, it was goddamn, there it is. <laughs> and there it was again, and it was a Black Panther, and we watched it and videoed it, and it, it was... Mm, 75 yards across this open field or something and it had grass about knee high but you could see the cat's back above the, that long tail and um, I don't know if Lamar got pictures or not but my cousin had video and Lamar and I it, it went around and then it went into the woods and Lamar and I went in and kind of was going to follow it and the tracks were through the mud the big tracks and, and then the cat kept there kept being things with black panthers show up in my life and with, with people. When we moved to Hopi, there was a black panther attacked up, uh, some ladies' horses, and it's like they had never seen a black panther there. But, um, people saw a lot of, had a lot of visions um, during that, that sweat lodge. It was, like I said, when you do so many of that veil so thin, magic happens, you know, it's just magic. Charles told me to take a, we would scratch with a to give a little blood, you know, mingle a little blood with our earth, and we'd use a hawk talon, and and he told me to put that out on the altar, and then in like the first sweat lodge, a hawk flew, and it flew over. You could hear the wings flap, and it touched me the wing as it came. I was sitting by the door in the east, and it flew around four times, and it would go. It would the lodge was like all of a sudden massive, huge, because you could hear flap, flap, flap. Four times and went back out the door. And Bill Burgess, the person I bought my the land from there, we were talking about where the trailer was. Bill was participating with us at that time, and it, that was the last sweat lodge he did. He never did another one. He said, "Man, I was sitting there." He said, "All of a sudden, it was like a movie screen. It was broad daylight." He said, "And there you were. You were up there on that hill in those prayer ties." He said, "And you were smiling and squatting down, and it was a black panther coming." to you and you were waiting on it and something circled me that night I don't know what the crap it was you know because I couldn't see anything I had no lights but something did walk around me up there that night so um, strongest spiritual memories of my life I guess mm -hmm. is in that forest and I don't understand it it's well of course I don't understand it but 
you know, it don't, um, I don't get it. I don't know what it means, you know, I don't know, I don't know. Afterlife and all that stuff, I don't know, I don't know anymore, I'm just find out when it gets there, and, it, and if it don't, I won't know it. <laughs> theme music. Thanks to Farron Weeks and the White Horse Singers for our episode music. And thanks to Janice Barrett with Wild South for her help with this episode. Learn more about present tense at greenbucketpress.com backslash present dash tense dash podcast. Learn more about the work of Wild South on wildsouth.org. You can find the link to the Grand Canyon Trust at greenbucketpress.com backslash present-tense-podcast. Subscribe and follow us to hear all the episodes in this series, The Fight for Alabama's Last Wild Places. Until next time, 